0: Hi there, and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host, Katie Rulan, and in conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions, and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I speak with Tom Wine. Tom is a researcher and consultant working in Nairobi, and he works specifically on issues of dignity and development. He's also a director at ID Insight, a non-profit that works on all issues in international development. And there he also profiles the research on issues of dignity. In this episode, Tom and I discuss the importance of dignity in international development, but social service provision more generally. We also talk about how it could be done and what the alternatives are to current practice. He talks about some of the research that he's been supporting and some practical ideas for organizations to foster a culture of dignity. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. And let's dive straight into the conversation if you don't mind. You are director of ID Insights. So first of all, what is it? What kind of organization is ID Insight? What do you do?
1: Well, first of all, Kitty, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Um ID Insight works to provide data and evidence for decision-making in development, to try to make sure that millions of lives are improved because people have the right information in front of them. We were founded 12 years ago in Zambia. There's now, goodness, I think 330 people at ID Insight across India, Kenya, Senegal, Morocco, Zambia, and the Philippines.
0: And so there are quite a few organizations working in this space, working on global development, and many of them try to improve people's lives and presumably also improve their dignity. Now, the aspect of dignity is an important component, as I understand it, of the work of ID Insights. So can you say a little bit more about how that features in the work and how it sets ID Insight and its work apart from what other organizations do?
1: Yeah, we've been building this dignity initiative at ID Insight for the last couple of years now, building on some work I'd been doing earlier on. I think that dignity is certainly one of these words that is used all across development and that people all across development have a sympathy with. It seems to me that whether we are really respecting the dignity of people we serve comes out in the data when we actually bother to measure it and check it and when we do research we see that even when people get access to the material aid they need all across the world people come away from service interactions feeling bruised frustrated not treated as they ought to have been and that forms a pressing need and gives the lie to those people who would like to use it as a buzzword for generally positive aspirations. Dignity needs to be looked at specifically and directly, and we need to bring to bear the full power of the tools of evidence and listening that we have in order to be tackled properly. There are wonderful organisations, some organisations that we partner partnered with, that have really deeply grappled with what it means to build a culture of dignity. And I hope we can learn from their example and the depth and difficulty of the work it's taken for them to really build that culture.
0: That's really interesting. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more when you said, in many places, the way in which people are receiving services or having access to support, material support or otherwise. It's it's not done in a dignified way. People get bruised. And you mentioned it gives rise to oppressed needs. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is something all of us have an inherent sympathy with because we've all had examples from our own lives. Almost everybody I know can point to an example of that doctor who wouldn't listen to them, wouldn't take their concerns seriously and their own knowledge of their body and their life seriously. I think a lot of people I know can also point to the teacher they encountered who saw all the potential of the person and the adult they could grow to be even before they knew it themselves. And in both those cases, those experiences have really lasted with them. That experience of being seen as a full complex human or not seen of being dismissed or treated as a case number is vastly more common for those people in across the globe who have less power in their lives, less autonomy. And so I think we can see it, for instance, when we look within humanitarian situations are perhaps sometimes particularly clear cut here. The example which has been much used by advocates of cash transfers is that people might receive a food voucher. They may have to queue in the hot sun to access that voucher. They may then have a lack of autonomy about how that can be spent and where it can be redeemed. They have almost no autonomy about what types of food they would buy and whether it's something that they would care to buy or something that they know how to prepare. And all the way through this, they may be looked down upon, perhaps by well-meaning international humanitarians who are at a very great distance from them. Um, the Overseas Development Institute did some research on dignity and humanitarian situations. And there's one particular quote from a uh, IDP, uh, an internally displaced person in Colombia, who talked about the parade of vests, which is to say, The endless stream of people who were coming and not actually providing any assistance, often conducting yet another needs survey without really addressing their actual needs. That is a fairly typical and repeated day by day user journey for many people who have been marooned in a humanitarian crisis. But it also extends to development, whether it's uh, governments insisting on ID cards insisting on registration of sim cards as we had here in Kenya not so long ago or peremptory demands that people access aid or or participate in government processes in a very particular way that serves the convenience of the bureaucracy rather than the widely varied needs of the population
0: and then what is the alternative? So there's a lot of organizations working in the space of of humanitarian settings, for example, providing those basic needs, often restricted or restricting users in how they use, say, vouchers or transfers, but arguably still fulfilling a need, a very basic need that exists. How do you see a more dignified way of implementing interventions? Uh, you mentioned a few organizations that you think have done this really well. If you could speak to what the alternative might be, a more dignified way of of development.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a starting point before organisations start taking action on this of diagnosis and assessing the problem. There may be good reasons why humanitarian organisations need to prioritise efficiency over humanity, why their processes need to be bureaucratic rather than compassionate we hope that they could be both, but the trade-offs are real. What they can start by doing is tracking those trade-offs, understanding how do people feel treated and what were the consequences of that. In doing so, that allows them to at least weigh up both sides of the trade-off that they are already making. When they do so, when when they diagnose that, yes, there is a problem, we think the right thing here is to take action on it, then there's a whole set of things they can do. So I think one of the organisations I admire most in this setting is Partners in Health. Last year, we published a report called Cultures of Dignity are Possible, um, which profiled six organisations that have really wrestled with how to build a culture of dignity in their work. One of those was Partners in Health, and we interviewed their director of policy and partnerships, Kate Oswald. She talked about the way in which... Partners in Health has determined to make longer-term commitments to places so that they have real time to set up the right bureaucracy and get it functioning the right way, because that's no trivial task. And if we're projectized, if we're just doing this stuff over a couple of years, then of course the bureaucracy has holes in it, the process has holes in it, because we just tried to do it too quickly. She also talked about their willingness to have fights with donors, their willingness to say we are we know the way we're doing this their confidence in their approach that has allowed them to show the donors that they attract there is another way of doing this and she said that that confidence came out of a commitment that runs all through the organization so she she recalled in that conversation her first day in Haiti, working with Paul Farmer when she first joined the organisation. She was all ready to provide clinical care, to be directing the operation, to be getting on doing all these things and the task she was given instead was to go to every bed in the hospital and ensure that every bed had either a view of the garden or a view of a piece of art and where they could not have a view of the garden, could not see a window, then they, she had to go and buy some art so that every person would have some beautiful thing to look at. It was a tiny fraction of the budget, but that tasking and that prioritisation that she was given has really stayed with her. And she talks about how that memory has led her to fight for budgets for a small amount of money for a gardener in every additional facility that she's helped fundraise to, to build and that that commitment runs right through the organisation and keeps leading them to keep having those those firm conversations with donors who might wish to prioritise efficiency.
0: I think that's a lovely example and really makes it more tangible what dignified practice means or a culture of dignity as well in these in these organisations. Maybe we can come back also to the conversation or the example of cash transfers, if you don't mind, which, of course, is also riddled with all sorts of trade-offs in terms of who can benefit from them, what amounts you give to people, how you give them to people. You mentioned having people sign up to a certain register or them needing ID, etc. So there's a lot of issues to navigate. If you were to approach it with a dignity hat on, what would you say are some of the priorities to, to look at?
1: I think one of the central debates in cash transfers that Dignity can inform in terms of how to administer cash transfers is the question of conditionality. Cash transfers have the best argument for being a more respectful form of aid when they maximize people's autonomy and give directly make a very effective argument on this. I think they've been very thoughtful, uh, especially in recent years, about how to build dignity and to monitor it within their, within their programming. That type of work requires constant attention to the simplification of processes and very hard decisions around conditionality. One of our partners in The Dignity Initiative is an organisation in India called Indus Action. Indus Action works is an activist group that works with citizens to help them access benefits to which they are rightly and legally entitled, but there is such a thicket of bureaucratic process around it, that is almost impossible for them to be seen. And in many cases, they were spending up to 60% of the value of the benefit in missed work by while traveling into town to, to get themselves registered. So there is an equipping of people to navigate the processes where an organization is providing the cash transfers themselves, a duty to simplify the processes, to make them human-sized, to make them reasonable, and in turn, a need to formulate and constantly assess what is the right level of conditionality. It seems to me that there could be benefits from adding conditions to to cash transfers. I think organisations like New Incentives have been very thoughtful about the way in which they're linking uh, vaccine take-up to, um, to small cash incentives. But what the right level of conditionality is seems a central and still open question for the literature. Cash transfers without conditionality seem res- seem clearly respectful of people's dignity. And indeed, Jerry Shapiro's work, uh, he published a piece in World Development uh, in 2019, showing that cash transfers are indeed considered more respectful by a population in Western Kenya than in kind aid. But then cash transfers plus a demand to take up a service, perhaps a service that people may or may not want, seem much more difficult to justify. Somewhere in the middle is cash transfers plus messaging and encouragement. Mapping out that spectrum and testing along that spectrum with testing not just of efficiency and effectiveness and income benefits, but also how do people feel about it? How was their welfare affected? How was their sense of whether they uh, were met with respect for their dignity affected, seems to me a really powerful research project that I hope um, the field will take up. Well,
0: so do I. I think that's a very important, under-researched and interesting question. So I would totally agree with that. Picking up though on the point about what success looks like, you mentioned there might be immediate sort of intermediate option when looking at conditional, unconditional cash transfers. But when thinking about dignity in development, in just improving people's lives. What is that success factor or the, the indicator of success? I hear you speak about people having greater autonomy. So that seems to be a big component of increased dignity. This is something at the individual level, but you also spoke about a culture of dignity in organizations like Partners in Health. So what are the sort of successes that you're trying to aim for?
1: Ultimately, we have to measure ourselves as a sector that is determined to improve people's lives by the changes in those people's lives, the people all this entire sector and all these programmes are supposed to serve. When it comes to dignity, I think that that is about three pathways to feeling respect for your dignity, whether people feel a sense of recognition, they feel seen, whether people feel a sense of agency, they feel they have choices and a meaningful chance to consent to what happens to them in their lives. And thirdly, equity, whether power differentials are minimised and even where those power differentials persist, people feel nonetheless treated as if they were fundamentally on an equal plane. If you can get to those three things, then that I think is what defines success. Alongside and never forgetting The other vital things that development has always cared about, about income, about life years added, about well-being, all these other things have to go alongside. I think dignity is just an additional consideration. I don't think it should replace those. One of my conclusions about how you get there is that practices of organisations really matter. To get those practices really enforced, I think they probably have to be backed by organisational culture. I think there's an awful lot of things that are, that people are, that frontline workers are trained in, that are in the user manuals, that when they're actually doing the work may or may not get remembered. But if you want to ensure that these dignity focused practices, these practices of how to be respectful of others, which may take more time, which may be an extra burden on people, if you want to re- ensure that those things are taken up, then it's got to be backed by a genuine intrinsic belief among all the staff that this is something that matters, supported by an organizational culture that's going to keep people committing to it. And that's why I talk about cultures of dignity.
0: Very clear, thanks. And I'm also immediately thinking to what extent is this an issue of development when we think about development in traditional ways of thinking about it, pertaining mostly to the majority world or global south, isn't this something that holds across the board globally in social service provision?
1: It absolutely is. My home country is the United Kingdom, and that is a country in which the human face of the benefit system, the welfare system, has been consistently eroded over, well, many decades of reform. It is a country in which the uh, immigration system is nightmarishly difficult to interact with, even for, the, even for people with the greatest privilege. And th- this holds true, I think, across many parts of the world. There's a developing and enormously valuable literature on the administrative time burden, the time tax of accessing services, particularly in the United States. I think there's wonderful work that's been done uh, on stigma of accessing different social services and what difference it makes when you destigmatize accessing that service that it seems to me is true everywhere i think right now we have a particular traction in order to take this a long way within the bits of social service provision that would think of themselves as global development these are organizations that I think have a rhetorical commitment to dignity, um, a belief that it's time for change, it's time for doing things better. I hope in doing so we're building up evidence that can be taken to governments all across the world in rich countries and poor and I think many of the practices that are learned through working with NGOs will have great relevance to governments all over the world.
0: So I'm really fascinated by you saying that you think there's traction now to Improve the dignity in what we might call global development interventions or, or policy, because we are also in a at a time when certainly aid money is squeezed, when there is the polycrisis, if you will, lots of humanitarian support needed around the world. And when I look at the landscape, I sometimes feel a bit disheartened that the aspects of dignity might not be at the top of the agenda. It's much more about delivering support to people who need it in a very efficient way. And as you explained, that might undermine dignity. In some cases, bureaucracy takes over. So where do you see the traction? And I'm really curious to hear because I personally think it's important, but I'd like to to hear where you see the opportunities.
1: I certainly share your disheartenment often. To me, I see the traction in a shared realisation across many parts of the world but especially within the global development sector in recent years that practices need to change the power needs to be redistributed and there have been a huge flowering of efforts to better attend to the needs of women in the in the development sector and a huge flowering of efforts to better attend to people who are from the countries that this foolish work is supposed to serve, and for the apparently eternal leadership of people from the former colonial powers to be diminished and moved on from. That gives us space within individual organisations who want to commit to this to really learn the right way of doing it to do good research to test out what are the most effective practices to be respectful of people's dignity whether that concerns processes of consent processes of feedback or participation and it gives us the room to highlight those examples to spread them to those other places and other sectors where the resources do exist. I think the wider system of aid is in huge difficulty. No, that's too passive. Let's say the wider system of aid is being directly threatened by a great many politicians who do not want to meet the obligations that they have to the world. But meanwhile, there is fantastic work going on among so many institutions and organizations, and we can still work with them, even as we advocate for a right sized budget and appropriately governed system above those institutions.
0: And what do you think will be the persuasive arguments? I mean, you and I both believe in the importance of dignity in development or otherwise, in any interventions working with people, but um, say for government officials who have limited budgets and where it's sort of seen as a trade-off maybe, how do you convince them and others that dignity is something to keep in mind? Is it a human rights-based argument? Can you make the argument on an effectiveness grounds as well?
1: I think the effectiveness argument has to accompany the rights-based intrinsic argument. You and I, as you say, and hopefully many of the listeners to this, care about dignity for its own sake. But in addition to that, of course we care about other outcomes. And what a growing patchwork of evidence shows, I say patchwork, I don't think the evidence is absolutely slam dunk here yet. But I'm persuaded that there's a patchwork of evidence from different studies, some from lab work, some some from uh, RCT, some from descriptive work, which shows that when people have encounters that are respectful of their dignity, this set of benefits flowers from that. And those benefits are individual. People come away feeling more empowered and happier. Those benefits are to the program that has occasioned those those respectful practices because people are keener to recommend the program, they have a higher willingness to pay for the program. They're more likely to return to that program and complete complete um, multiple sections. And we see this range of hard to pin down, but I think potential societal benefits beyond the individual and the program. You also see that people are more willing to cooperate with one another, that they are more civically engaged but less politically partisan, that they are less prejudiced towards outgroups. And so you see these other things that we think are incredibly important to the progress and furthering of societies. And those, I hope, are things that can help justify why this is so important alongside what I would think of as its intrinsic value as as part of our human duties to one another.
0: You provide quite an impressive list of the evidence already available on how being treated with respect and dignity can have all these positive effects. Yeah, let's build on that evidence and make sure the argument becomes even more persuasive, I'd say. I wanted to pick up on one more thing about the redistribution of power, really, and also the agency that that people have in determining their own lives, and link it to a conversation that's also quite topical at the moment within global international development, which is around whose knowledge counts and is taken into account and acted upon in interventions in development at large. And when thinking about the concept of dignity in and of itself and how to address it, I came to a similar question in your work, in the work of the organizations that you work with. Are there explicit efforts to make sure it's not just a Western notion or a notion of dignity that we think is commonly understood being imposed on the people that you work with? Is there a process of surfacing contextual meanings of dignity and acting upon them as well?
1: I think this is an incredibly important area And if an effort like this to advance an idea like dignity within development is to have any just foundation, it must be continually resourced and replenished with the voices of those whom it is supposed to serve. The ways we're trying to do this are through a consistent investment in descriptive research to just understand what dignity means to people and how they view dignity. There are many, many different traditions of dignity. That suggests that it's important all around the world because virtually every community and moral tradition has come to an idea of dignity. But it also suggests that it varies in really important ways. We'll be publishing some research very shortly that I've been doing with Kate Lamberton, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, which looks at Those three pathways I gave earlier of recognition, agency, equality, and looks at them, compares and contrasts how they are viewed in the United States, Nigeria and India. Um, We have a really good amount of evidence from the United States about how people think of dignity. We have a specific lack of evidence in South Asia and in West Africa that we're hoping to help correct. And one of the things that shows is that while dignity is really important to people in all three of those places, And while those three pathways seem to have a validity in all three places, they're weighed very differently. There is a particular focus on recognition, on feeling seen as important to respectfulness in the United States, whereas there is a particular focus on agency in Nigeria and India, and people feeling like they have real practical choices. We convened a group of scholars last year to input into a consensus research agenda around dignity. One of the central themes that they offered us was a consistent need to keep charting and describing people's ideas of dignity all around the world. We've been feeding this into our measurement strategy by making sure that the measurement of whether people feel they've been treated in a way that respects their dignity is as subjective as it possibly can be. So that people are consistently asked, were you treated in the way, in, in the way you would expect to be? without us prompting what their expectations ought to be. We published a working paper that validates a five-item survey measure that's focused on subject- subjectivity, validates that it's Morocco and China, three places with very different ideas of dignity, very different traditions of dignity. And that seems to me to be really essential to this approach, is to keep describing how people think about dignity and keep allowing that subjectivity in so that there is a waste for the incredible variety in people's views and attitudes of how they ought to be treated.
0: Thank you for giving those links to the research that you've done, the research that's ongoing, and we'll make sure to put links to the working paper and any other completed works you already have in the notes to the episodes. That brings us towards the end of the conversation, at which point, I ask my guests whether they want to share anything that we haven't spoken about just yet or that I haven't asked you about that you really want the listeners to know about.
1: I think what will be most important and that I hope people can take away from this conversation is that there are practical steps that can be taken inside organisations whatever the deficiencies of the system that we're working within to begin addressing how to properly respect people's dignity within our organizations and our programs. We have recently worked on a self-assessment diagnosis tool, a 15 minute exercise that people can do for themselves just to get a sense of where their organization is when it comes to dignity. It's incredibly valuable to just start a conversation within your organization about this, even if you don't feel fully equipped, even if you don't feel expert upon this, to begin talking about this, to prompt uh, the organization about how might we do better, to find that little band of allies who might care about this, I think is something that I hope people in many organizations have the autonomy and the room to take up and start advancing what could be an incredibly valuable and transformative approach for international development.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that very practical suggestion at the end of this conversation. I think it's something that many people that listen to this can action. And so take a first step towards more dignified practice anywhere in the world, really. Tom, thank you very much for joining today and for your insights and experiences. I am particularly happy that we have spoken about the issue of dignity and how to promote it. And I think the listeners will also really appreciate. So thank you again.
1: You Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram or go to our website and sign up to our newsletter. And please also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you'll join us again next time.